Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. And welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next few minutes, please stay with me. 30 minutes of motivation, education, information, all done without any manipulation. You know the drill. We're here to give you accurate information, not any sort of emotional stimulation, accurate information whereby you can understand, you can hear clearly what is God's plan for your life. Hopefully, and if you can orient and adjust to the plan, that'd be fantastic because then you can tap into the wonderful sources that the Lord has for you in time as you live here in the devil's world. The flat line is all about giving you that accurate information, not human speculation, accurate information. And that's why we predicate this show on teaching God's Word. And uh, I would like to say that we have a new station joining our lineup, KHUC, called KHUC, the home team in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. We welcome them to the stations that now broadcast the flat line across the United States. It's always a great honor to welcome in a new station. We're glad to have them part of the family. As we have been going through the last few weeks, we've been going through something called Avoiding Stinking Thinking. We've done four shows on that, and we want to try to wrap that up today if we can. But Avoiding Stinking Thinking. And the key thought is this. You're not what you think you are, but you are what you think. You are not what you think you are, but you are what you think. Because the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And so if God wants to look at you, he's not going to look at your image nor your style. He's going to look at what you're thinking. He has the ability to do that in his omniscience. He can see what you're thinking. And so the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul went on to say, and we've been on this subject for several weeks now, finally, brethren, that's believers in the town of Philippi, where he had established a local church, he said, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, then think on these things. And we saw that this is where Paul gave an imperative mandate. It's a it's an imperative mood verb. Think on these things. This is not a request. And so, as the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as you think in your heart, so are you. The real you, the invisible you, is what you think. That's your soul. Your soul has mentality. Your soul has volition. Your soul has conscience and self-conscious. And listen, your body will die and go to the grave. There's no doubt about that. But your soul and your spirit will go to heaven. And in heaven, your soul and your spirit will be reunited with a resurrection body. That's a body like our Lord Jesus Christ that he enjoys now. This is the body we will have forever. But we'll take our mentality to heaven with us. We will take this ability to think, comprehend, logic, and reason with us. It's part of the format of your soul. So remember that. In Romans 12, 2, Paul gives a mandate to be transformed in your thinking. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, changing the way you think, renovating your thinking. He goes on to say, 
so that you may now approve what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so we have been going through the believer's mindset. There's no magical button to push, I told you. Nothing's going to give you. You know, you can't go to a campfire and throw a piece of wood on a fire and say, Lord, make me like you. That's not going to happen. There is no magical button. It only comes through the constant renovation of your thinking. And the only way you can constantly renovate your thinking is to take in information. When you take in God's Word on a consistent basis, and this is why you hear me tell you all the time, you must be under the ministry of a well-qualified pastor who can teach you God's Word. When you take in God's Word on a consistent basis, it builds up a biblical inventory of ideas. And when that biblical inventory of ideas gets built up, then your frame of reference changes, your memory center gets full of God's Word, and you begin to think differently. You begin to react differently. And uh, you can even get rid of the stress in your soul. You've heard me say adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Because adversity is what circumstances do to you. And stress, that's thinking. Stress is what you do to yourself. Worry, fear, anxiety, bitterness, guilt, implacability. These are all self-induced. If you listen to God's word, Remember I told you four things. You assemble to hear it. You concentrate to listen to it. Recall it to remember it and use your volition to apply it. When you do those things and you're doing what the Lord said, happiness belongs to those people who hear my Father's word and who keep it. Luke 11, 27 and 28. So you can't apply what you don't know. So when Paul says to these people, whatever things are true, and that's the word, the Greek word alethos for truth, whatever things are truth, he required them to seek truth, not false information. And I told you that Satan was in the false information business. I gave you a verse that we looked at in 2 Corinthians 2.11 where Paul said, don't let any advantage be taken of you by Satan so that we will not be ignorant of his strategy. And Paul again said in Ephesians 4, 7, don't give place to the devil. We're told in Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God that we can stand against the strategy of the devil. There is a strategy. Satan has satanic strategy. And there's an international strategy and there's a local strategy. That local strategy is you. How does he get you to move away from the filling of the Holy Spirit? How does he get you to use your volition to reject God's plan? And how does he use you to further his plan? Well, it's always through a system of religious instructions. That's what he uses mostly. His ace in the hole is always religion. And it appeals to human arrogance. That's why 2 Timothy 4.1 said some are going to fall away from the faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's right, doctrines of demons. Satan has his own doctrines. And so we went over, how do you know truth when you hear it? How can you identify truth when you hear it? Paul also said, whatever things are noble, that's dignified, worthy of respect. We translated that word, that word reverent. And uh, for the believer, you and I, we must respect God's word since it is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Within the word of God, we've got to respect the laws of establishment, which God put forth, freedom. 
for us means uh, volition. He gives you the right to choose. Marriage. God ordains marriage for all members of the human race. The family. God ordains the family for the raising of children. And nationalism. Not internationalism like at the Tower of Babel where the world tried to come to be under one order. But, but nationalism. God separated the nations. Different languages. Different looks. Different colors. He did that. Not man. There was a reason for that. And so they, that is so that they cannot be easily manipulated by Satan. So we have to understand those divine institutions and be loyal to volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. Whatever things are right, Paul went on to say, to chaos. And that's referring to the laws of morality and right conduct, right thinking, following the protocol plan of God, understanding the protocol plan of God. Then we, he went on to say whatever things are pure, thinking on these things, hagnos, things that are pure. And this, for example, is to the pure, all things are pure in Titus 1.5. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their mind and their conscience is defiled. Thinking on things that are pure, being free from fault is basically what it boils down to. You are not allowed to share in another person's sin by gossip or maligning or slandering. We're to keep ourselves pure, which means staying in fellowship, not being stained with personal sin, and how unconfessed sin, we went over that, will pollute your thinking and block you from understanding God's Word. I showed you that in Ephesians 4.17 where you build up scar tissue in your soul and your thinking gets darkened. Then we saw whatever things are lovely and uh, prosphilios, whatever things are pleasing or acceptable to God. We saw that. And then we went on to see whatever things are of a good report, whatever promotes peace, not division. And we saw if there's anything of virtue, a behavior showing high moral standard. We saw that. And so uh, we'd like to continue this today if I can. Whatever things are of virtue and whatever things are praiseworthy, then Paul said, these are the things that I want you to think on. So we wound up with, last time you heard me, was whatever things were of a good report, euphemos, well or good, good report, whatever promoted peace, not division, whatever was positive in construction. And I went into the fact that you must not allow Satan to use your tongue to start a fire. And uh, that would be giving a bad report. James 1.26, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he's deceiving his own heart, and his religion is useless. James went on to say in 3.5, see how great a forest fire a little fire kindles, and the tongue is that little fire, a word of iniquity. So a lot of people, maybe even you, many people never consider sins of the tongue to be worthy of confession. But anything spoken, ill-spoken words, these are the roots of many problems in the body of Christ. And all verbal sins, they always originate with a mental attitude sin. In other words, jealousy will motivate you to complain, or jealousy will motivate you to slander or malign someone. The blindly arrogant person is the person who actually commits the worst sin rather than the person who might have done the open sin. The blindly arrogant person will judge them and malign them and criticize them. 
And so Romans 12, 2 says you are without excuse. Every person who keeps on judging other people, for in that you judge another person, you actually condemn yourself. Because you who judge actually do the same thing. Now, this may shock you if you'll take your Bible and if you'll read the last part of Romans chapter 1, you'll see what Paul is talking about, what you should not judge. And I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to pick up your Bible and read those last few verses in chapter 1. And then jump over to chapter 2, verse 1, and see what he's talking about. When you judge a person, then you are guilty of the same sin. You're condemning yourself. Because you who are judging are actually practicing the same thing, Paul said. So look at it. Take time today. Get your Bible out and look at the last part of Romans 1 and that first part of Romans 2 and see, are you guilty of judging another sin? And then he goes on to finish up by saying, if there's any virtue, arete, virtue, what a wonderful word, virtue, virtuous, this is a sort of behavior that has high moral standards. The synonyms for virtue would include integrity, I like that, dignity, honor, respectability. And what the apostle is doing here is telling these believers here in Philippi that they must set a higher standard for themselves. The spiritual life the Christian life, when you learn the protocol plan of God and you follow the protocol plan of God, you will produce a lifestyle of virtue. And I say protocol plan of God. God's plan requires protocol. You cannot build a flat line without following the protocol plan of God. What is the protocol plan of God? Well, the believer in time, the believer in eternity, and the, and the person, when he hears the gospel, the protocol, plan of God, says, how do I get saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's what Paul told the Roman jailer. John 3.16, God so loved the world that whoever gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him, believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You want to find out if they're a Christian? Ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the anointed Son of God? And listen to what they say. If they believe that, that's what the Bible says. John, 1 John 5, 1, he that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. There it is. It's plain. It couldn't be any plainer. It doesn't say anything about going forward or joining up or raising your hand or jumping up or going backwards. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You're believing what he did for you on the cross, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God through him. When you understand that and you believe that, you become a Christian. You usually signify that with means of a prayer. And the Bible says, whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in prayer, you can simply tell the Father, I am believing what I heard. I believe that Christ is your son. I believe he died for my sins, and I'm willing to receive him as my Savior. That's how the protocol plan of God starts. And that's what he is telling them. They must have a higher lifestyle, a lifestyle motivated by virtue. 
There are two types of virtue I want to bring to your attention. Motivational virtue and functional virtue. Motivational virtue is you loving God. It's personal love for God. 1 John 5, 3 says, If you love me, you will obey me, and my mandates are not grievous. They're not hard. So if you love God, you will be motivated to obey God. That's motivational virtue. And then functional virtue is if you say you love God, the Bible says, and hate your brother, you're a liar, and the truth's not in you. Functional virtue is you using impersonal love to other people. You're loving them based on your integrity, not theirs, just like God loved you based on his integrity, not yours. And so when you understand motivational virtue and functional virtue, then you begin to live the life of virtue. That doesn't mean you never sin again. That's impossible. You are plagued with a sin nature. You have a sin nature. You're going to sin. But you can learn God's word. You can stay filled with the Holy Spirit consistently. Rebound when you fail. Get back up and can resume your spiritual life. And you can begin to represent Jesus Christ to your family, your friends, even to your nation. You can. So if there's any virtue, Paul said, this is something he wants you to think of. A virtuous lifestyle. And let me turn some notes over here for you. A virtuous lifestyle is not a legalistic do-gooder. That's not what it is. It's not some self-righteous saint judging everybody. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't, I don't, I don't. And they think they're better than everybody else. Stay away from that idiot. That's the wrong guy to be around. A virtuous lifestyle is not that way. It is related to what you think and what motivates you to do what you do. That's the virtuous lifestyle. It's not the fact that you don't go honky-tonking, as some people might say in the South. I'm going (laughs) honky-tonking. Listen, honky-tonking is what you think. It's It's your mental attitude sinned. The virtuous believer doesn't have that sort of attitude. He's not looking for a place to make him happy. He's not looking for a nightclub to party in and spend some money in and try to find happiness in an overnight affair. That's not the Christian life. So a virtuous lifestyle is depends on what you think. What's your motivation? What are your values? What, what makes you do what you do? Do you do what you do because you love God? Is that why you do it? The virtuous believer, he's not going to talk about you behind your back. He, he's going to forgive you if you fail, and they're not going to put any sort of unrealistic expectations on you. So Paul said, if there's any virtue, and then he goes on to say, if there's anything praiseworthy, pinos, praiseworthy, Wow, anything worthy of commendation or approbation. In order to concentrate on that which is praiseworthy, we have to kind of know the attributes of God, correct? Do you know what they are? Do you know the attributes of God? 
Do you know his sovereignty, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his immutability, his veracity, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his eternal life? Do you you know these things? Do you know anything about them? I mean, how can you really love a God you don't even understand? I mean, if you have an image of God with a beard sitting on a throne, that's not what God is. God is omnipresent. He's not seated in a room. Jesus Christ is. He's in heaven in a body, a resurrection body. And he is God. But God the Father is not in a body. He's omnipresent. That means he can be in California. He can be in Wyoming. He can be in Texas. He can be in Arizona. He can be in Louisiana. He can be in Mississippi. He can be in Alabama. He can be in New York. He can be in Arkansas. He can be in all these places at the same time. And so when you pray and I pray, we may be thousands of miles apart, but God is here. He hears us. He's omnipresent. And so in order to concentrate on those things that are praiseworthy, you need to know his integrity, his character, his essence. Worthy of praise is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we take communion, to remember the work of Christ on the cross. Don't ever take communion and let it become a ritual that has no reality to it. When you put that wafer in your mouth, that piece of bread in your mouth, you better remember what that represents. It represents the body of Jesus Christ our Lord. It represents hypostatic union, true humanity, and deity in one body forever. It represents virgin-born, that he was born without a sin nature. He had no earthly father to pass on the sin nature. His mother Mary was uniquely conceived. He did not have an earthly father. He was born without a sin nature, just like the first Adam was created without a sin nature. And the first Adam sinned and fell. The second Adam, Christ our Lord, did not sin and did not fail. So, you want to think about that? Think about the virgin birth of Christ. Think that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords when you put that wafer in your mouth. And remember that he's impeccable, without fault, the worthy Lamb of God without sin that takes away the sin of the world. When you put that wafer in your mouth, you should know these doctrines, hypostatic union, virgin-born, king of kings, impeccable, and you should know what that cup represents. When you sip of that communion cup, you should know that that is representing his blood, which means redemption, imputation, justification, propitiation. Big words, I know, theological words. Do you even know what they mean? How can you celebrate communion and just go through the ritual and not understand what you're doing? You know, another thing's worthy of praise is prayer. An effective prayer life will always concentrate on the adoration of God's plan and the provision of God's plan before you begin making requests or petitions for your personal needs. This is how you renovate your thinking. This is how you get rid of stinking thinking. In Luke 6, our Lord is appointing 12 apostles and teaches them many things, and one subject was to stop judging other people like the Pharisees did. 
The key passage about that judging is Matthew 7, 1 through 7, where triple compound discipline is taught when you stick your nose into someone else's business, when you judge them. But our Lord now in Luke 6, 46 through 49 speaks frankly about not obeying his mandates. And Matthew, or excuse me, in Matthew 6, 24 through 29, and then Luke 6, 46 through 49 is a parallel passage. So we've got two passages that basically say the same thing. Matthew 6, 24 through 29, and Luke 6, 46 through 49. Actually, it's Matthew 7, I'm sorry, excuse me. Matthew 7, 24 through 29, and Luke 6, 46 through 49. So I'm going to read to you Matthew 7, 24 through 29. I'm going to read it out of something called God's Word Translation. Interesting translation. Listen to what it says. Therefore, everyone who hears what I say and obeys it will be like a wise person who built a house on rock. Rain poured, floods came, wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not collapse because its foundation was on a rock. And everyone who hears what I say and doesn't obey it will be like a foolish person who built a house on sand. Rain poured, floods came, winds blew, and struck that house, and it collapsed, and the result was a total disaster. When Jesus finished this speech, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Unlike the scribes, he taught them with authority. You hear that verse? Anyone who hears what I say and obeys it. Wow. Luke says, why do you listen to me and you don't obey me? Could this be you? Have you heard God's word and you won't obey it? Then you are essentially building a ruin in your soul. It's like building a house on the beach, on the gulf, waiting on a hurricane to come and you didn't even sink pilings in the ground. You just put it on top of the sand. What do you think's gonna happen? In your life, if you ignore the mandates of God and you build your house on sand, as this verse says, when the rains come and the floods hit and the winds blow, you're gonna be destroyed. It's going to be a disaster because you have nothing to hold on to. Where did you build your house? What is it based on? That's a good question. The motivation to obey our Lord comes from 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God, that we keep his mandates, and his mandates are not hard. They're not burdensome. They're not impossible. So the question is, do you love God? Because if you love him, you will obey him. And you've heard it. You've heard it over and over and over again. You just don't choose to obey, do you? My prayer is you will. You will build your house on the rock that will endure any storm that you may face in the future. Because of believe it or not, America is about to go into a terrific storm. And only a few I'm going to make it. I hope you'll be with me. Come back next week, same time, same place. Until then, this is your host, Rick Hughes.
Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.